Hello and welcome to the Anishinaabe History Podcast. I'm Chris Wheat. Today we're talking about the Ojibwe Chief Peguis. In the early 1800s, he was a prominent statesman in the Red River and Rainy River areas. He gave help to the Red River settlers when they were attacked and forced to flee. He was a signatory for an important treaty, without which Winnipeg may not have been settled. And Chief Peguis also encouraged other chiefs in the area to be good Indians, so to speak. Peguis and his people actually came from the Sault Ste. Marie area and entered the Red River region in the 1790s. Because they came from the Sault Ste. Marie area, they were known as the Saltu Ojibwe. The Red River region was the traditional territory of the Assiniboians, but smallpox had devastated their population, leaving some camps empty. Near the south end of Lake Winnipeg is the mouth of the Red River. Near this alluvial plain is a place called Netley Creek. It had a nickname of River of the Dead because of the impact of disease, specifically smallpox. Many Assiniboine people died. Some encampments were empty. Sometimes there were only one or two survivors from a community. Chief Peguis and his people settled their camp along Netley Creek at one of these former Assiniboine sites. Years later, in 1817, Chief Peguis, Lord Selkirk, along with four other Assiniboine and Cree chiefs, signed a treaty that laid the foundation for future settlement. It was an agreement to share the land between Scottish, Cree, Assiniboine, Ojibwe, and Métis people. The previous year, 1816, was the infamous Battle of Seven Oaks, also known as the Seven Oaks Massacre. The battle occurred due to competing interests between rival fur trading companies, the Hudson's Bay Company and the Northwest Company. Men from these two companies had, at different places and times throughout their history, attacked and battled each other through physical violence and bloodshed. Their conflict in the buffalo trade is known historically as the Pemmican War. The Peguis Selkirk Treaty of 1817 was a diplomatic attempt at securing peace for all people living in the area. Every year, more and more people were expected to arrive in the area, many of them from Scotland. Because the Red River settlement was also intimately linked to the Highland Clearances of Scotland. The Highland Clearances, also known as the Gaelic Clearances, were decades-long attempts at social engineering. The clearances were part of a rapid change in lifestyle in Scotland, from the patriarchal clanship economic system to the private landlord system. The result for tenant farmers was a loss of status, work, and land. Due to the clearances, there was a mass emigration of tenant farmers and working class from the United Kingdom, willing and able to colonize North America. The clearances began around the year 1760 and continued for almost a century. There was even a point where Scottish landlords would pay for their tenants to emigrate to North America. That was in the early 1800s. It is important to know that at the end of the Napoleonic Wars in 1815, the Scottish kelp industry collapsed, resulting in a sudden and large number of unemployed former tenant farmers. Even the wealthy landlords of Scotland suffered financial losses and faced bankruptcy. So, many such Scottish working class traveled to the Red River region under promises of a new life. What awaited them in the new world? At the time of the Peguis-Selkirk Treaty in 1817, there was no railroad west of Toronto. In fact, the Canadian Railroad was yet to even be dreamed. 
The first steam engine railways were developed in England in 1830. By 1836, however, the first true railway in Canada was built. It was built by John Molson and a few other merchants of Montreal. It was known as the Champlain and St. Lawrence Railroad and was used as a portage between the St. Lawrence River and Lake Champlain to make the journey from Montreal to New York much quicker. The railway from Lake Superior to Winnipeg was completed in the 1880s. Prior to the railroad, migrants had to travel by river and overland, portaging their own belongings. There were two main ways to get to the Red River area before the rails were built, Hudson's Bay or Lake Superior. Both routes had difficult terrain and climate, but the river valleys were rich with arable land. Unfortunately, there were already people living and working there. Chief Pegos was not against settlement, however. His agreement to the Treaty of 1817 is proof. Even decades later, in the 1850s, Pigwis wrote a letter on behalf of surveyor S.J. Dawson, encouraging younger Anishinaabe chiefs and communities to let the surveyors work unimpeded. Pigwis was older than many of the other chiefs in the area between Red River and Fort Francis. He was not a ruler over people in the area, but his age and experience earned him veneration. In 1858, Dawson met with Ojibwe chiefs at Fort Francis while surveying a route from Lake Superior to the Red River Settlement. Dawson produced a letter that had been dictated by Chief Pigwis. It was written in the Anishinaabe language and was read to the chiefs gathered in Fort Francis. Translated, the letter reads as follows, quote, My friends, I hope you all that are to the east of this colony will give the same respect as we have done to these gentlemen giving them full permission so as to explore the country along the line of the route. Knowing I being the oldest chief, I have full confidence you will listen to my advice. End quote. At the time, the native population in the region between Rainy River and Red River was in the thousands. For instance, during the sturgeon fishing season, large villages of Anishinaabe people were built up around successful fishing weirs, some of these villages could have a few dozen, a few hundred, or even over a thousand people. It was not a terra nullius. Dawson himself noted that the native people could, if need or want arise, gather in great numbers. At Fort Francis, for example, the Hudson's Bay Company records by George Simpson indicated a conservative Ojibwe population of 1,500. In the surrounding area, Simpson estimated nearly 3,000 natives, and that estimate didn't include Ojibwe people on the American side of the border. If the Anishinaabe people wanted to stop Dawson's party, they could have. But by and large, they didn't want to, and on top of that, they were encouraged by Paguas to let the surveying continue. That's why there's a railway across Canada. And yet, after this initial period of cohabitation, the Canadian government still decided to force native people onto reservations and into residential schools, while at the same time forbidding commercial trade between natives and non-native Canadians. Why? What is in the Pigwis-Selkirk Treaty? In simplest terms, it was an agreement between British Canada and five chiefs in the Red River area to live together in peace. Britain and the Scottish and Irish settlers were represented by Lord Selkirk. 
The treaty was signed because some fur traders, especially under Cuthbert Grant of the Northwest Company, had aggressively been pushing the settlers out of their promised land. The Hudson's Bay Company had just recently sold over 100,000 acres of land to Lord Selkirk for land development and colonization. But the Northwest Company wanted furs, not farms. An example is the Battle of Seven Oaks. During the fur trade years, pemmican was an important commodity. Both major fur trading companies relied on the pemmican economy, but the Hudson's Bay Company wanted absolute control of all the pemmican trade. In June 1816, a group of 60 Métis and Anishinaabe men were delivering pemmican to Northwest Company canoe brigades on Lake Winnipeg. The delivery was interrupted at a place called Seven Oaks by officers and employees from the rival Hudson's Bay Company. Heated words were exchanged, then a gunshot, followed by a shot as a reply, then more gunfire as the two sides exchanged in battle. When the muskets couldn't be reloaded, hand-to-hand -hand fighting occurred. By the end of the battle, Semple and 20 of his 28 Hudson's Bay Company men were dead. They had been outnumbered two to one. The Northwest Company suffered one loss, a 16-year-old Métis boy named Joseph Letendre. The Métis had displayed deadlier musket tactics than the Hudson's Bay Company men. Chief Peguis could see the battle occur across the Red River. His Ojibwe warriors wanted to join the battle, but he held them back. After the battle, Peguis buried and mourned the dead men from the Hudson's Bay Company. Many of them had been his friends. It was a complicated time. The Treaty of 1817 was a means of protecting settlers from fur traders, as well as protecting Anishinaabe, Assiniboine, and Métis people from encroachment by settlers and fur traders, and even from potential attack by Dakotas to the south. The treaty forbade settlers from settling on lands set aside for First Nations in the Red River area and the land settlement pattern created a buffer between the Anishinaabe, Assiniboine, and Métis in the north and the Dakota in the south. And yet, decades after this treaty was signed, Aboriginal people were forced by the government from their traditional lands onto smaller and smaller reservations. Why? That's all for today's podcast, but stay tuned for more episodes in the future. I'm Chris Waite, and this has been the Anishinaabe History Podcast. 